Welcome to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston. And I'm Jason. Jason, it's been a little while. How's everything going? Yeah, we've uh, both been pretty busy with harvest, and it's nice to have that in the rearview mirror and to be wading through the data and see what we've learned. For sure. It's, it's good to be back to podcasting and to talking to uh, experts. Today's guest was a little bit different than our normal corn, soybean, agronomic tech discussion. We talked to Charlie Thompson today. He is the vice president of Illinois Foundation Seeds. They're located just out of Champaign, Illinois. Yeah, I thought this was a great conversation, Preston. I thought we learned a lot of interesting tidbits, a lot of things I didn't know before. Uh, we even learned a little bit about baby corn. Yeah, absolutely, Jason. We learned a lot of cool little factoids about sweet corn. We're definitely going to link Charlie's information and Illinois Foundation Seeds information on our newly launched website, so be sure to check that out. Without further ado, let's get right to the conversation with Charlie. Charlie, welcome to the podcast. To kick things off, would you give our listeners a little bit of information about your background and history as well as what you currently do? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first, I'd just like to say, uh, Preston, I've known you for a few years, so um, why it took you this many episodes to invite me on. You know, I'm a little at a loss for words, but <laughs> <laughs> no, no kidding. I, I really appreciate the invitation to uh, talk about uh, sweet corn, maybe pull the, pull the curtain back a little bit and debunk some, some myths or misconceptions out there as we're, we're all very familiar with sweet corn from a, from a consumer perspective, but not necessarily from the history or breeding or development side. I grew up on the, a farm here in central Illinois. Uh, my dad still farms in Sangamon County, so not too far from, from where we sit today in Champaign County. Um, developed a love and passion for agriculture early on in those years growing up on the farm. And then came to University of Illinois uh, for, uh, for undergraduate in crop sciences, plant breeding, um, and genetics. Um, and it was really from my first genetics course that I was captivated by genetics and breeding and um, the predictive nature and just kind of the continual improvement, both from a you know, food supply standpoint and, and the science side. Um, so stayed on and did my graduate work there at University of Illinois in wheat genetics. Um, and as I was finishing up my graduate work, I had this a good opportunity to interview with Illinois Foundation Seeds uh, about the possibility of becoming a sweet corn breeder. Uh, growing up on a farm, you know, we, as most farmers do, you always plant a little bit of sweet corn along the side, maybe of, a, of one or two fields. Um, you know, you enjoy that, that summer sweet corn season, but I was really unfamiliar with it. Um, you know, not a lot of it is grown here in central Illinois. Most of the corn you see is all field corn, starchy corn. And so it kind of intrigued me. So came on with uh, Illinois Foundation Seeds right out of grad school, and that's been almost 10 years ago. So I was a sweet corn breeder here in Tolono just south of Champaign for five years and currently serve as our vice president and director of research. So I oversee our breeding and research team um, all the way through product development for our global portfolio of uh, sweet corn products. So tell us a little bit more about Illinois Foundation Seeds. So is that a, a private entity or is that a public entity? Yeah, good question, Jason. Uh, Illinois Foundation Seeds is a little bit behind the the curtain, we're not openly visible in a lot of markets. Um, so we're actually a company that's been in business for, for 83 years. Um, we started out in 1937 as, as hybrid corn was entering, hybrid field corn was entering the, the realm and 
we had all these small regional seed companies that were producing seed stocks, it was uh, pretty inefficient for each of them to do their own seed productions or at least maintain their own parent seed. And so that's where these companies came together, uh, formed IFSI, and uh, it was just a more efficient means to, to do, those seed pro- do that seed production. Sweet corn really got its start in early 1960s with the discovery of super sweet corn through the University of Illinois. And then we've kind of expanded the, the breeding and research side of sweet corn since then. Um, we still do have a, little, uh, a field crop division that does some licensing and some research there, as well as a little bit of seed production as well. As I understand the history of sweet corn, um, which is not uh, very deeply, the discovery of that super sweet gene was a, was a big step forward. But how far back does the production and the eating of sweet corn go? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. So I'm going to talk a little bit of, about different types of sweet corn today. And, and really what was historically present was called sh- is a mutation in the sugary one gene. So we call those sugary sweet corn, or sometimes it's referred to as normal sweet. Um, and those sugary hybrids have actually been around in so- South and Central America for, for thousands of years. There's evidence that those indigenous uh, populations had uh, maintained these, this sweet corn uh, for, the, for that period of time. Um, and it's actually quite interesting. So you might have seen some depictions of, you know, the pilgrims meeting the Indians and, and as they, they came over from, from Europe. Europe. Um, maybe that, that characteristic Thanksgiving photo. Um, and, and that sweet corn actually arose independently from those, that South and, and Central America corn although it is a mutation in the same, the same gene. Um, what's interesting about both of those or how those indigenous populations used sweet corn is they didn't eat it fresh like we do today. Um, so they were actually drying that corn down and most often using it either for alcohol fermentation or uh, grinding it into flour uh, for confections. And so what we know today is modern sweet corn where we actually consume that fresh uh, at the dough stage is really a modern invention. So that kind of enters literature about 200 years ago, um, you know, early 1800s. So was that in America or was the sweet corn, is that kind of where we developed this modern style of eating it? Yeah, so that would have been developed in, in, a, in the Northeast in America. Yep. Interesting. Charlie, I heard you say a term super sweet uh, for the listeners. What, what does that mean? Yeah, maybe let me just pick up this history at the early 1800s and uh, we'll get up to the 1960s and, and talk about super sweets. But so the, we, we've now in the early 1800s, we have this, I'd say modern invention or modern method of eating this, this fresh corn. Prior to that, if people did eat, I'd say fresh corn, but they called it uh, or green corn. Um, but that was really field corn at an early stage. So you could probably imagine that's not going to be very tasty. So this new um, eating sugary corn was, was probably a, a large improvement. And we really start to see the sweet corn take off in 1840s, 50s. You start to see named cultivars appearing in seed catalogs like Stoll's Evergreen or Country Gentleman. It's actually interesting. I think you can still find some of these varieties today. Um, these are all, of course, open pollinated. So how well they are maintained or represented might not be perfect as to what they were in the 1850s. Um, 1902 Burpee, which again is a company still still around today, um, released Golden Bantam. Um, prior to this, most of the varieties were all white kernels. 
And so it was a pure 100% uh, white year. Uh, but Golden Bantam actually changed the market to yellow. Uh, had better taste characteristics, probably, you know, tenderness and sweetness and flavor. Um, and I, I find this part interesting because we often today, we have, uh, many people have a, have a preference for a kernel color. Um, they say, oh, the, the bicolor varieties that are 75% yellow or 25 and 25% white are, you know, they taste better. Well, sometimes it's very related to a variety. And that was certainly the case there in the early 1900s. So the, you see this change in of preference to yellow varieties with the, with the release of Golden Bantam. So there's really nothing about that yellow or white that's really tied to the flavor. It's more of just a coincidence with a, a variety that was developed, happened to be a better flavor and happened to be yellow. Is that what you're saying? Precisely, Jason. Yep. So we, um, through modern breeding techniques, we can create conversions of different varieties. And this is only, it's only a single gene that really makes the difference in color. Um, and so we can make a variety that's yellow, we can turn it into a bicolor variety, and we can make it into a white. So a good example of that is a bicolor variety that we have called Kickoff XR. Um, very successful, so we made it yellow, and it's called Takeoff. And then we actually just released the, the white version of that this year, and it's called Leadoff. So really, you can have the, the same quality, the same variety, nearly identical, except for the, the kernel color. That's really interesting. So if we jump back to the, the 1920s, um, we actually, sweet corn actually has the first single cross hybrid released. Um, and so if you're familiar with the advent of hybrid corn, that was certainly a, a revolutionary invention for, for field corn yields. And actually we see single cross hybrids for sweet corn were actually much more common, uh, maybe even 30 years prior to their, their common use in field corn. So most of those early hybrids from field corn were, were three-way or four-way crosses. Um, and you, we see sweet corn actually adopting single cross hybrids uh, much earlier. Charlie, when we, you know, we look at a sweet corn in the seed catalog, there's a lot of options in there. Mm -hmm. And um, it can be kind of difficult for, the, for me and, and I assume other consumers to decide what to plant if you, if you find somewhere that has a lot of options. So there's at least, I think, four or five different uh, genes that relate to the sweetness and you can shed some light on this, but I'd really like to have you break it down to make it simple for someone like me that looks in the seed catalog and doesn't know what to buy. So I, I believe there's sugary uh, or SU, sugary extender or SE, super sweet, um, which I think is SH2 or synergistic, which is, which is SY. And maybe there's augmented super sweet and I'm not sure how that's denoted. Can you wade through that a little bit and kind of simplify it for the average consumer? Yeah, absolutely. So the, and you're, I'm going to put these into three buckets. Um, so you're going to have the sugary, which are, we know we've already talked about the normal sweets, the sugary enhancers, the SEs, which actually are, they're actually homozygous for the sugary one gene as well. So it's almost like a, it's a, an enhancer. Well, that's why they call it sugary enhancer, but it's an enhancer to that sugary gene. And then the, the super sweets, which are based on the, the SH2. And you're right. They, you know, we, for branding purposes, uh, there are things called augmented super sweets, or our our version of that are um, the extra tenders. And actually, we we just released a new brand uh, two years ago called Reserve, and that's just it's still based on the the shrunken two gene, but it's just uh, differentiating a higher level of uh, eating quality. And by eating quality, I mean a more tender pericarp, so more tender bite, and then also enhanced sweetness and, and flavor. Um, so kind of the key characteristics of those types and what made 
Shrunken 2 and Super Suites um, really revolutionary is that Shrunken 2 has a much wider harvest window and, and shelf life. So both pre-harvest and post-harvest. So prior to that, the sugary hybrids, um, you know, the, there was an old adage, make sure your, your pot of water was boiling uh, before you went and picked the corn because your shelf life is going to decrease that fast. So you better get it into the, the boiling pot that, that quickly, um, which was probably a bit excessive. It doesn't, doesn't decrease that quickly, but um, shrunken two holds its sugar content um, much more, but much longer in the field and once it's harvested. So it's really revolutionized the, the shipping industry, the, the grocery store chains in the U.S. So is a lot of that benefit come then to the producers and the mass production? As far as in a home garden, does that SH2 gene bring value to a home gardener? Or is there a better choice for someone that just wants a couple, uh, you know, a couple times when they're just going to pick some and, and eat it right out of the garden? Yeah, and actually, in, in my opinion, I'd say it, it matters just as much, if not even a little more. So that's a good question, Jason. So think about a home gardener. Uh, sweet corn, it's not quite like a tomato where, you know, it's going to put on tomatoes for an extended period of time. Uh, corn is a determinate crop. So it's going to put on, it's going to flower and put on a single ear, sometimes two, depending on fertility or population density. Um, and then that's going to be it. Um, and so if you're, you know, say you plant a block of corn in your garden, it matures, and then you, you, you only have a short harvest window, you know, two or three days to eat that corn. That's, you know, that was a lot of effort, a lot of space um, for only two days of uh, enjoyment. And so that's where a, a shrunken two is, is going to give you, we have some, actually, we were doing some studies this summer that, I mean, we have some that extend out to 10 days plus of acceptable harvest window. Um, and then if you figure you can pick it, put it in a, in a cooler, um, or a refrigerator, you know, you get, get it cooled down, stop that cellular respiration. Um, you could even get another 10 days to two weeks of corn. So I guess I have another follow-up question here, and I, I apologize if I'm getting too deep into the woods here, but um, I, are there some concerns about if, if someone, say, a home gardener wants to plant two or three um, different hybrids, uh, do they want to make sure not to plant um, these types together because of cross-pollination or are there is there anything to consider there? Yeah, absolutely. And, and most seed catalogs will will, have, will lay out this pretty well to hopefully prevent uh, uh, disaster. Um, but anything in the super sweet, um, SH2, so that um, super sweets or augmented super sweets are extra tenders or reserves, those can all be, that makes up one isolation group. Um, but if you're growing a, a sugary, a synergistic, um, or an SE, those, those make up another isolation group. Um, so you definitely don't want to have cross-pollination across the super sweets and the SEs or synergistics because you will, those resulting kernels will be uh, dent, will be starchy. So that can definitely affect the end quality of, of that product. That might be a little disappointing. <laughs> Very, yes. <laughs> I have one more history question for you. The Trunken 2, SH2, is it a rumor or a conspiracy? Or did that result from nuclear testing on the Bikini Atolls? I feel like I've heard that story in college at some point, Charlie. Is there any reality to that? I, I believe it does come from mutagenesis. Um, John Lonnon, he was really the scientist who was responsible for the discovery of Trunken 2, was using it as a, as a mark. It, it co-segregated with a, another maize mutant that he was looking at or a maize locust that he was interested in 
So yes, I believe it was mutagenesis. I'm not quite sure the location of that, um, to be fair. And just for a, a shameless uh, plug here, which we throw out every once in a while, uh, we did do a three-part series on the history of plant breeding in which we did talk about mutagenesis. So if someone's interested in learning more about that process, feel free to go back and check that out. Yeah, and I'll just uh, quickly talk about, uh, touch on John Lawn in a, a bit, because this, this is a great story of, of observation and discovery. Um, so he was using this SH2 because it was visible on the seed and was present in his other research. Um, but as he's sitting there, maybe doing some, some counts or um, looking at these ears, he, you know, he, he pops a few kernels into his mouth and uh, realizes that they have a, have a sweet, pleasant multi flavor. And, and then recognizes that that could be potentially useful and marketable in, in sweet corn and, and continues for the next, you know, nine years to, to develop a variety. And, and he was the, you know, he developed Illini Extra Sweet, which uh, Illinois Foundation Seeds was responsible for marketing, but really that was uh, John Lawnen's invention and, and first hybrid. So it's a, a nice story of scientific discovery, observation, and how that can really ultimately change an industry. Um, all because of uh, Lonan's work. It's really interesting when we look at the number of scientific discoveries that were almost on accident, just by chance, or someone happened to do something. I mean, you know, the, I think a lot of people know the story of the discovery of penicillin and some of those things. And it's just really interesting how some things kind of, um, science can really figure some things out, but sometimes it takes a little bit of luck too. Yeah, Absolutely. Charlie, you mentioned bicolor. I was curious, are there any other sweet corn myths that you would like to repudiate is one question. Also, is sweet corn considered a vegetable? Is that settled? Yes, it is. And that's a, that's a great lead into one of the others uh, myths that I, or misconceptions that I, I hear on occasion. And that's um, nutritional content. So we, you know, of course, we, we do this a little bit to ourselves, right? We, we called shrunken to super sweet to differentiate them from, you know, normal sweets that do have a lower level of sugar. Um, and so it kind of gives, of course, in today's uh, health conscious world, which is, is, is honestly a good thing, you, you're trying to reduce your sugar intake. Um, but honestly, sweet corn has uh, much less sugar than a banana or an apple, um, which we certainly don't, you know, we don't think twice about eating as part of a healthy diet. So it's low in sugar. Um, it's also low on the glycemic index. Really, that means that it doesn't lead to a, a spike in blood sugar. So even though there's uh, some sugar there in the corn, it doesn't um, respond to, or it doesn't act in, in the body as like uh, drinking a 12-ounce can of Coke would. It's also low in fat um, and high in dietary fiber. So being high in dietary fiber is good for those little microbes in your gut, um, and it's a good source of protein. Further health benefits are it contains lutein and zeaxanthin, um, which have been shown to protect against uh, macular degeneration. Um, and it's high in magnesium, iron, potassium, and a few other uh, vitamins as well. So yeah, definitely a vegetable and, and it's, it's healthy. So I wouldn't shy away from this as being part of your whole foods diet. Sounds like we need to all eat more sweet corn. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's going to be the message today, eat more sweet corn. <laughs> so as a, as a sweet corn breeder, you know, we, Preston and I are work mostly with agronomic crops at this point in our careers. And so, um, you know, we're focused on sometimes grain quality, but for the most part, we're focusing on increasing yield. And obviously increasing yield is always a good thing, even in sweet corn. 
But as you prioritize traits, uh, what kind of things are you constantly trying to improve in sweet corn and what is the most important? So is it shelf life? Is it taste? Is it agronomic type traits, disease and insect resistances? What are the most important things? And maybe it's all of the above. Yeah, and it is a little all of the above, Jason. And to, to help, I might explain, there's really two primary markets and that kind of drives variety selection and advancement. Um, so there's a processing market and what we consider processing is uh, canned, freezing, um, and that can be either you know on the cob as a cobet. Sometimes you'll see in the frozen food section these small sections of, of frozen ears, or cut off the kernel where it's just individual kernels that are either frozen or or canned. So that's processing, and then um, the other side would be fresh market. So on the processing side, really their yield is still the main driver. That's how these processes are, and growers are, are, you know, that's how they make their, their money. So it really needs to deliver uh, pounds of corn, pounds of cut kernel or kernel mass uh, per acre. Um, and of course, how you do that is you can have deeper kernels, you can have longer ears. Um, so that's similar, I guess, yield components to what you would see in, a, in, in field corn. Um, but also, you know, those defensive traits are very important. So disease resistance, northern corn leaf blight. Uh, common rust. Uh, some areas of the world we have to worry about uh, viruses, other trait characteristics like lodging, uh, you know, you need healthy roots. Um, and probably a trait that's more important in sweet corn than, um, well, it is important in field corn, but it's more of as you move geographically is, is maturity. Um, so often in sweet corn, because you have a relatively narrow window to harvest, you're doing uh, successive planting. So you're going to, you're going to, you might start planting in central Illinois at the end of April, but you're going to carry those plantings on through June, because if you planted all of your acres at once, um, you wouldn't be able to harvest it all in time uh, before the, the quality went downhill. So that's interesting. And, and for the processing market, are those machine harvested? How are, how are those harvested? Yeah, processing is almost, it uh, would be a hundred percent machine harvested. Um, on the fresh side, there's certainly some fresh corn harvested by machine, but a lot of the corn in the U.S. is still hand, hand harvested. Now, there is certainly a trend away from that as labor gets more expensive, more difficult. Um, but yeah, a lot of the uh, corn that you get in the grocery store is still going to be hand harvested. Do you have taste testers? And are you looking to fill any taste testing role? <laughs> <laughs> we, we do taste test, yeah. So they're you know, tenderness and flavor and just the eating uh, experience is, is certainly a complex combination of, of different traits. And we could, you know, we can precisely measure sugar content with uh, analytical chemistry. And, um, but that's difficult to do on a, a, you know, thousands of new varieties. It would be very expensive. So um, you just go back to the old bite test. <laughs> so yeah, during the summer or during our trialing season, um, we're biting into anywhere from 200 to 400 hybrids a day. Wow. So Charlie, this might be a little bit outside of your scope here. I'm not sure, but um, in stir fry, I always enjoy the little baby corn. Is, is that sweet corn or is that field corn? Uh, neither. So most often baby corn is going to be a popcorn variety. Really? Um, popcorn has huh. a, especially some popcorns have been bred to have a, a high prolificacy, which just means they put on a lot of different ears. Um, and those make the best baby corn because you, you can get, you can honestly harvest baby corn from any corn variety. You just need to harvest it early enough. 
Um, but commercially, that's most of the time popcorn just because they can get, you know, six to 10 years per plant or something. So they just get a better yield. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. So that's something that as I'm going through in the in the breeding nursery, sometimes I'll, uh, at pollination, I'll pull an ear off and, and have a mid-morning snack uh, of a baby corn. <laughs> <laughs> One of the perks of the job. That's right, yeah. So, Charlie, I've had the benefit of sampling some of your sweet corn over the years, and it's hard for me to imagine, you know, improving the taste. I mean, your, your sweet corn's amazing, obviously. Do you think there's room for any new John Lawnens out there, or uh, what excites you most about the future of sweet corn? Yeah, that's a good question. When I started, you, you see these giant leaps in sweet corn quality. So, you know, with Shrunken 2 and in the early 1960s was just revolutionary. And then the augmented super sweets or the extra tenders in the early 2000s, where we combined that sweetness of a, of a super sweet with the, the tenderness of an SE. And so you just had this entirely new eating experience. Um, and where I sit today, I find it hard that we will get that next leap. Um, of course, we're looking for it. But I think it's going to be, at least in, in the eating quality side, it's going to be more nuanced. It's going to be a texture change. It's going to be a, a perhaps a flavor, um, you know, as we as we look to maybe a higher corn flavor is is preferred, especially in some culinary instances. Or um, so I don't. I, it's probably going to be difficult to increase the sugar content of the of the endosperm further without affecting seed germination and and plant health that way. But I think there's still a lot of innovation to go in sweet corn. So especially this time of year, um, it's, it's difficult to get that high quality corn in the, in the supermarket. You know, we, we all love our roadside stands, farm markets in the summer, um, and those are just different varieties. And so it's my job to be able to put together that quality into an agronomic and plant package that then these growers in, in the fall and winter in Florida and Georgia can grow that level of quality and deliver it to a consumer 365 days a year. So I think that's where we'll be in the next five to 10 years. And then beyond that, I mean, these the new technologies like CRISPR and gene editing, I think offer some, some interesting possibilities. Charlie, this has been a really interesting conversation. I've learned some things. I'm, you know, this is a really interesting story, at least to me, I hope the listeners agree. Uh, if someone wants to learn more about this topic or learn more about Illinois Foundation Seeds or interact with you, uh, do you have any, are you on Twitter? Does Illinois Foundation Seeds have a web presence? Uh, how could they interact more and learn more? Yep, yep. So you can find us on the web at ifsi.com. Um, there you will, we have a list of products and uh, also a, a list of our dealers uh, in the U.S. where you could actually purchase our seed. Um, you can find us on Instagram at IFSI Sweetcorn. Um, we try to be, post re fairly regularly of what we're doing, where we are, um, so you can keep tabs on, on Sweetcorn that way. Sounds good. We'll be sure to link to that in the show notes. Uh, Charlie, we really appreciate your time, and uh, it's been a pleasure here today. Yeah, thank you again, guys, for the invitation. I've, uh, I've enjoyed hopefully sharing some of the Sweetcorn knowledge. So um, as Jason said about mid-talk here, uh, eat more Sweetcorn. <laughs> not too many people are going to argue with you there the views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer